0: until 2013 i made a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> then i lost it all <laughs> i think you called it the clusterfuck situation <laughs> <laughs> i think that
1: is my opening
0: line. <laughs> yeah when you're sitting in a space of potential fear or self-doubt that probably means that more often than not you're on the cusp of something very brave and courageous and you know something a big turnaround a big pivot is going to happen welcome to the seize the yay podcast
1: I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. If I had to read out Lisa's full bio, it would probably take us a whole episode to get through it, so I'm just going to give you a little intro to start with. Having followed her closely for many years, I was absolutely stoked to speak alongside her a few years ago. I know, how did that even happen? I remember expecting the measured and serious words you'd think would come from the successful CEO that she is on paper, but being delighted to see a full-blown, crazy, passionate, and totally relaxed visionary walking all over the stage and delighting the audience and just igniting their sense of possibility as she does so well. Let me give you some context. The first sentence of her latest book talks about being in the middle of a, quote, total and utter mind-scrambling clusterfuck, unquote, my kind of woman. And yet she is still the seriously successful CEO that she is on paper. Lisa launched The Messenger Group in 2001, which now has 18 arms and has published around 400 books, including, I think she says even up to 24 of her own. Her world-renowned magazine, Collective, reached distribution all over the world and despite closing earlier this year, brought inspiration to millions of aspiring entrepreneurs. Her latest book has just been released, Risk and Resilience, which has kept me engrossed and breathless for the last 24 hours, so I am so excited to have her on the podcast and couldn't think of a better first guest. Thank you so much for joining me today Lisa, although I'm actually joining you because I'm in your beautiful home. Thank you so much for having me here.
0: It is amazing to see you and I love that we're actually doing a podcast to catch up. I know! (laughs) We were like just before I walked in and I was
1: like oh my gosh Lisa I've got so much to talk about. I literally went into a vortex after reading Lisa's new book yesterday and I just have so much to say. It's um, absolutely brilliant and Lisa just kept going, no, we need to wait. We need to do it on the podcast. So we've started
0: recording now. That's a good step one. That's actually the worst and best thing when you get on so well with someone and you like vibe off each other. It's very hard not to start talking before we should actually talk. So (laughs) we've saved it all for you guys. We have. So it's all
1: raw and open, which Lisa is very well known for and is so inspiring for. But the first question I like to ask everyone is what's the most down to earth thing about you? I think once you become as successful as you it can become quite intimidating and where the magic really happens is when people can really relate to you as a human being you're so great at that your books are so open and raw and authentic but just for the sake of any new listeners I mean you know I go to the supermarket you go to Necker Island with Richard Branson and like <laughs> what, what's something that makes us realize you're you're just a human
0: I'm just what you see is what you get and that doesn't matter if it's me writing a book, which I've now written six in the last four and a half years. So Mm -hmm. my life is literally a book. Um and or sharing across social media or meeting me in person or whatever. Like I just wanna be yeah, authentic and say thank you for saying that and real and raw and relatable and attainable. I think that's what's really important. Like I don't feel like anything special at all. I'm just someone having a go. And I suppose for anyone following me or new to me, (laughs) it's like... I'm never going to pretend to be something I'm not. And I think that's the thing. People would define success, I'm doing it in inverted commas, as you know, you should almost be untouchable and you should be, you know, and some people create themselves very specifically as that kind of a brand like Anna Wintour, for example. And that's what she's chosen to do. But for me, people are often like, oh, wow, you don't have any makeup on or, oh, wow, your hair's really messy or, oh, you're just wearing kicks today. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty much me. <laughs> or I rock up to meetings with my dog, Benny, who's sitting next to us on the couch at the moment. What Whatever it is, I'm just me doing my thing. You know, I love that about you. It's <laughs> it's seriously unique and
1: very endearing because I think once you get to a certain level, it is almost a protection mechanism because everyone wants a piece of you. It can be hard to keep that real, relatable. I'm just who I am, and a lot of people say that authenticity is of, you know the utmost importance to them. But you really live it, and I, I love that about you so much.
0: Well, I'll just add to that. The thing is, a lot of people live in fear I think and the thing is when you actually share your heart on your sleeve what's and all and say it how it is then there's actually nothing ever that we can be afraid of or that will keep us small so it's actually um, it's actually much easier living authentically because no one can ever catch you out and be like, but you look like this on Instagram and I saw you in person and actually you look 20 years older or, oh, you said this, but then you did this. Like, it's actually a much easier way to live. So yeah, if people are listening just, um, Maybe think about that and just check in with yourselves on that. Um, yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive to maybe what we would imagine, but it's actually much easier.
1: Yeah, that's such great advice. I'm, that's the reason I'm the worst liar ever because <laughs> I, just,
0: I can't remember what my lies are. Like every
1: time I've tried to pretend that's something else, you know, I just forget and I you put always my foot get mitt, caught out. So. <laughs> So let's start at the beginning, uh, the segment that I like to call your way to yay. So how did you get to this point where you're seizing the yay in your life?
0: Yeah. Um, I hear your first job was as a
1: riding instructor. Yeah, I was a
0: horse (laughs) riding instructor. There you go. That'll keep you grounded and down to earth when you're shoveling poo at 5am every morning. (laughs) So were you like a cool kid at school? Did you go
1: through an awkward teenage phase? Like what was life like before the empire?
0: Uh so yeah so my brain goes oh yeah it was really cool always no probably not <laughs> um i think like many people it's only looking back that helps us to kind of understand where we are now one thing i know for sure although i had no idea what it meant at school was that i was always questioning everything and asking why but why but how but how and i've talked about this a bit before but so much so that i remember my maths teacher, Mr. Kamarami, actually picking me up while I was still sitting on my chair and carrying me out of the room while I was still talking. Like <laughs> literally putting me outside the maths class, like chair and all, just plonked me down, closed the door. I was probably still talking. And so I was always in trouble. At school, so I was always a bit of a rebel. I was probably a little bit cool, but maybe not quite in the cool group. always kind of <laughs> always <laughs> an outlier um but you know many people will relate to this. When you're at school, you're just the naughty one or you're just in trouble. And I find it quite ironic and perplexing that now that same kind of attitude as an entrepreneur is what is celebrated and holds me in good stead. Now asking, but why, but why, but how, but how on a daily basis actually helps to propel me forward and continuously buck the status quo and find different ways of doing things. So yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the education system as it currently stands, but that's an entirely different conversation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we could go on for hours yeah. about
0: that one. Yes, we could. <laughs> so cool. Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes not. I mean, I repeated in, uh, what is it, first form, year six, because I think I'd, I came from the country um, growing up, you know, riding horses and making mud pies in the creek and riding motorbikes after school and... And then went to a a very posh boarding school in the middle of Sydney. And I was probably really out of my comfort zone. I was like, whoa, what is this? Fast cars, people with money don't understand. What a transition. Yeah. So I did did sort of bumble along in that year and then kind of repeated and then found my groove. Yeah. And then between that and founding
1: the Messenger Group in 2001. Yes. You've now been in business, I think it's 16 and a half years. Yeah, my boyfriend so... is so sick
0: of me saying that. He's, I'm like, I need, a, I need a rest. It's been 16 and yeah, a half years. He's so like, 16 and a half years. He's so sick of me saying it. it's nearly 17, so I can change my vocabulary around that. <laughs> yes. I started my first business on the 22nd of October, 2001, so it's nearly 17 years, um, which is quite extraordinary. And so, you know, I was actually listening to the co-founder of Netflix talking on something this morning, and he said, oh, a 20-year overnight success. And I've long long been saying Collective Hub was like an 11-year overnight success. I bumbled (laughs) along. Overservicing, undercharging, all the things that many of us in small business do, and then finally something worked. Until it didn't, but we can get into yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, did you
1: start a business because you had worked for someone and not liked it, or because you had a vision and you woke up in the middle of the night and you were like, I'm just going to do this tomorrow. Like, what was the very beginning like?
0: So lots of things. And I mean, that's, yeah, 2001. So that's a long time ago. And that's kind of almost before the phrase, which we all use every single day. Well, certainly I'm in a bubble where everyone does. But entrepreneur or startup or, you know, side hustle, like all these things (laughs) when I started, no one was talking about. At all. So the reason I started was I basically got fired <laughs> from my job. silk lining nice. Um, yeah, so but I, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's just that every job I was always in, I was probably like, millennial way before the term was coined and I was like I want I want everything my way and you know I can see you bigger and you're not moving fast enough and I want equity in your business (laughs) even though I didn't know what equity was at the time it just sounded really sexy I think and so I was kind of probably painful and I was one of those people who actually just needed to be set free to kind of play and bumble along and explore and seek I am a seeker at the center of everything you know on my own and so my boss um brought in a guy above me and um and who had all these rules and which in hindsight were probably brilliant like actual KPIs key performance indicators <laughs> like any, actual <laughs> any good staff member particularly mine should adhere to all the time um But I kind of revolted and I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do it my way. And he said, well, maybe it's time you left. But he was so nice. And he said to me, you know, take whatever you want and basically go and set up in competition. Adam was his name and he's um, still a great friend. He was very, very supportive. So I did. And I left with $4,000 and kind of set up shop. But it was before the time of Um, I didn't know what a mentor was and I didn't know about networking groups and I didn't know what an entrepreneur was or how to start a business. So there I was at my kitchen table and a funny little segue, I, I got some business cards made and I thought, right, and this is actually a good philosophy, which I've probably stuck to to this day. I thought, well, make myself look big. So I found a P.O. box in Australia Square, um, which I still have to this day. And <laughs> oh, you know so what? Cool. I've never been there. P.O. box H241 Australia Square. My mail has been redirected from that P.O. box for 16 and a half years
1: <laughs> <laughs> because nearly it sounded really
0: swanky. <laughs> and so that's how I set up. Mm. that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so funny I, it's it's such a wanky address it sounds so good never been there <laughs> that's about, I love that you still haven't been there to take a photo I and haven't. be like this and is you right what? started so this isn't very clever I pay every year like whatever the mail redirection fee is a few hundred bucks to redirect it because that's still <laughs> you've got to keep it but it's I will keep it I don't think there are many PO boxes there actually but it's um It's actually been good because as any startup will learn, you move offices quite a lot. Goodness knows how many times I've moved offices over the years. So that has been the one constant that everyone can continue to send mail to. And I just redirect it to wherever we land. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. But it was quite, you know, I'm a big believer in say it and then step into it. And I think that was probably the very first time I did it. I was like, right, PO Box, H241, Australia Square. That sounds important. And uh yeah, fake it till you make it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the best method is to, otherwise you just don't get started. Like you never, yeah. you never get anywhere if you're waiting for the perfect moment because mm. it just doesn't, just doesn't come.
0: There's no perfect moment. Yeah. And everything pivots and iterates and changes and morphs. So you've just got to like step into something and then something will finally work. Or if it doesn't, just try something else. Yeah. <laughs> so then Collective Magazine came
1: yes. along in 2013. Yes. So quite a while into the journey. Yeah. Um, up until that point, what what was the messenger group? Was it just mainly a publication
0: company, like a publishing house? Well, it was a bit of everything, which is not a very clever way to run a business. So <laughs> – um, so, after I got fired in two thousand and one, I so I was working for a sponsorship agency at the time. So I was doing sponsorship for Cirque du Soleil and the Wiggles, so all arts and entertainment and it was I was only there for eight months and it was the most extraordinary job I've ever had, really, because it taught me how to broker deals how to do collaborations again before the word collaborations ever existed so things like Cirque du Soleil I did a deal with BMW you know them sponsoring it and what did they get in return and really those eight months before starting my own business formed my entire thinking and it's the entire basis of my thinking still to this day so I started um, as a sponsorship partnership agency so I've always been into you know partnerships finding like-minded non-competing brands and then working out how can we if we share similar values and audience profile how can we do business together and that's not necessarily a cash or monetary exchange that's how i've run all my businesses started as a sponsorship agency then morphed into a um i always do inverted commas (laughs) an integrated marketing agency you need a little like animated thing for you (laughs) and like when i say that Really, I was kind of, as I mentioned before, being everything to everyone, you know, doing some business plans, some branding strategy, some bit of, you know, everything as a slushy. And that's not a good place to be. You know, when you meet those people and they're like, hey, I'm Sarah, what do you do? Oh, I do a bit of this and a bit of that. And no one can actually engage you to do anything because they don't really understand it. But also, they can't tell their friends or their colleagues about. Who you are, or what you do, because they don't understand it. So, um, so I kind of bumbled along, and what that meant was over servicing, under charging, but also not replicating anything. So unable to scale. So I was kind of like, oh, I'll write a business plan for someone. I'll do a marketing plan for someone. I'll actually, um, you know, implement something for someone, but doing that meant that I was recreating something every single time. So there's no leverage. There's no scale. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Clients loved me because they would <laughs> get a great bang for the buck. But it wasn't a scalable business. And then I moved into um, accidentally publishing books because in 2004, um, I start, I wrote a book called Happiness Is. Um, and I decided to self-publish and using my sponsorship kind of background, I pre-sold um, copies of that book to like Mercedes. So to incentivize test drive and Clinique because I had a perfume called Happy Hearts. So I was like, you know, buy um, a bottle of Happy Hearts and get a free copy of Happiness Is. So I did this book and kind of probably was the first person in Australia to kind of really push the publishing model from a book perspective. It was kind of quite well known in the US. It was known as special sales, but no one in Australia to my knowledge until that time had done it. And it was purely because I took lessons from outside of the book publishing industry and just brought them to the table. So if anyone's listening, that's probably one of the most important things I'm going to say today. I never look at the industry I'm in for lessons. I always look outside of the industry and bring other ideas into the current industry. And that's how I remain on the front foot and disrupt. So. Yeah, so then I started helping people to publish books as marketing tools, essentially. So I actually published – no one knows this really um, because no one kind of knew who I was for that period (laughs) – but for about nearly 10 years – I um, published around 400 books for other people as marketing tools, but books are a very, very different and very one-dimensional beast compared to a magazine, which as I learned (laughs) is very complex (laughs) and very much bigger than a single book, but we can get onto that.
1: (laughs) And so the magazine came about after this process of realizing,
0: were you lacking something in? Yeah, I was. And it's a good segue. So with the Essentially, what I morphed into was um, a a publishing company producing books, like custom publishing books as marketing tools for other companies. So um, it was great because I got to meet a lot of interesting people, but it was very one dimensional and quite boring for me. And which I think anything as an entrepreneur, when it becomes quite cookie cutter, which is a good way to run a business, very, very profitable that business was. (laughs) Let me tell you, until 2013, I made a lot of money. (laughs) Then I lost it all. (laughs) Um, It was a very profitable business, but I was comfortable and I was bored. And so my only real thinking, and I couldn't scale it, I could never, ever work out how to have more than three staff. I couldn't work out extensions or additional revenue streams. And so it was pretty much a cookie-cutter approach of, you know, Sarah coming to me going, I want to produce a book, and me going, right, here's a ghostwriter or an editor Proofreader, designer, printed book, go. And so we did that over and over again. So I was surrounded by extraordinary entrepreneurs, thought leaders, risk takers, like amazing people. Um, but I wanted to kind of smush them all together into one <laughs> smush. It's a very <laughs> that technical, technical term. Is technical term? Into one place. And so I walked into the office to my team of three in um, I think it was April 2012 and I was like we should do a magazine which made absolutely no sense because <laughs> the, um, I mean naivety can be a great thing coupled with some business acumen and a lot of sort of failures under your belt <laughs> and boredom um, there were 5,500 print magazines at the time in the Australian market alone. And people said that magazines were dead or dying. And whilst I'd published books, I'd never worked on a magazine. I had no idea about how to put a magazine together or anything about distribution or anything about anything, actually. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Just live, But I have this huge burning passion. And I was like, I really want to do this. What I did know was a lot of influential, amazing people. I was very well networked. And I was like, I just want to bring them all together. And when you've got a burning passion and you really want to make a change and also you're frustrated or pissed off, which I was, I was like, ah, there's nothing out there for entrepreneurs. You know, you could read about amazing people doing amazing stuff, but it was always to me, it was always quite surface. It was like, they're amazing. And I was like, but how, but how, but why, but why? Those (laughs) same questions. Like, how did they start? How did they get it funded? Where do they manufacture their product? How do they distribute it? Where do they find staff? Do they choose content producers or marketers first? Like, I just had so many questions. So I was like, well, I'm surrounded by all these people. They all have all these answers. Why don't I just smush them all together? And, (laughs) um, and, so that's, that was really the, how Collective was kind of accidentally born. And what happened next was huge. <laughs> absolutely
1: incredible. And I, I feel like it's an entrepreneurial trait that these great ideas usually happen in an area where we have no skills, no background or anything, partly yeah. because that's the challenge is your yeah. burning passion is to create. And if you're in a cookie cutter comfort zone you're not creating or you're not igniting anything.
0: 100% and yeah that we want to challenge and it also comes from our own pain points and I think naivety is a good thing because when you've come from that industry yeah the cookie cutter you go oh this is how you create a magazine you do this you do this you do this but when you don't know anything Google becomes your best friend, how to start a magazine. Oh, and oh, I need one of those. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And you, you can break all the rules because you don't know that they're there in the first place. And I think that became a beautiful thing. And we can dig into rules that I broke and how I made things happen. And I mean, a good example is I got into Coles and Woolworths because I just picked up the phone and it was like, oh, I see magazines in Coles and Woolworths. Oh, I'll just pick up the phone and find out how to get into Coles and Woolworths. Now, what I finally realized when I got through and was that you go through this <laughs> whole thing called a range review where you might get into like 10 stores out of the 860 initially and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, But what happened was a lot of other editors and publishers looked at me like I had two heads and they're like, what? No, wait, you've got to have had a magazine for seven years before they'll even consider you. But if I listened to that before I naively, enthusiastically picked up the phone just to ask the question, I may never have picked up the phone. So, yeah, naivety and a good dose of passion and tenacity can take you a long way. (laughs) Absolutely. And you remained the sole shareholder
1: and um, an owner of Collective Hub is that right mm. it was, that's absolutely incredible I mean what a feat yeah
0: <laughs> incredible and <I'm> stupid <laughs> <laughs> no uh I did and I still am and I'm I broke the brand and I'm remaking it at the moment so yeah <laughs> whatever you want to dig into about why I did that why I would not necessarily do that go again ahead. <laughs> all right go first. for it <laughs> first
1: uh obviously over the nearly 17 years of business, you have had an incredible, just a string of highlights and achievements. And I, I mean, I said at the beginning that it would take an episode to read your full bio. So I just <laughs> did a little summary. Um, do any of those stand out to you as your greatest achievement? Or do you have any highlight pinch me moments
0: that, that just stick out in your memory? Oh, gosh, so many. But the thing about it is, yeah, in the, in the 11 years prior to Collective Hub, I might have had like, A big highlight pinch me moment maybe once every six months or something and I feel like with collective it was like once every six minutes or six seconds (laughs) (laughs) like you know when you really step into your purpose and this I know for sure it is insane and I talk about this a lot and you know people like Simon Sinek do a lot as well but the thing is once you know your why the how kind of just takes care of itself and so so many people try and control an outcome but I just go right collective stands to ignite human potential so kind it wasn't mine to know necessarily how that would evolve but just to stay really focused on that and then you know stay open to opportunities um definitely highlights were starting collective hub and in equal measure um again counterintuitive to what a lot of people might think is having the courage to break collective hub is also a highlight so we can get into that but um i mean other moments like richard branson yes you mentioned him before (laughs) i mean i was invited to necker in november 2014 before necker became like the cool place every kid goes (laughs) um
1: you're the og in every way
0: (laughs) (laughs) um so so that was amazing but you know uh, more extraordinary and amazing things with richard happened after that whereby um I think it was 2000 well, he then wrote a testimonial for the front cover of my second book in the series Life and Love which was amazing and then um his PA Helen asked me if I would co-chair the Virgin Way conference with him in Australia in 2016 so I found myself sitting on stage with Sir Richard Branson for three hours chairing the Virgin conference which was <laughs> amazing and then afterwards um they took me up to make Peace Island on the Noosa River for the weekend where I then shot him for a cover. And, you know, things like that, so, Yeah, I mean, I got an email 18 months into Collective's journey um, in the subject line it just said from the office of Anna Wintour. And then it said, Anna (laughs) Anna would like to meet with you in New York. And for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, Devil Wears Prada, September issue, like the doyen globally of publishing really, the editor of Vogue for many, many years and, you know, several other things. And Collective had gotten onto her radar and she invited me to go and have a meeting with her in new york and you know 18 months in like that's insane so that's how i know truly anything is Is possible possible. (laughs) um i can't even imagine yeah so many i mean there's so many moments i was the only person invited to shoot jamie oliver for a cover um last 2017 when he was in australia and i spent hours with him and we just had such real talk about all sorts of things and and both of us at the time struggling with our print mags and he closed his um, just before i closed mine but yeah i've just i've been exposed to stuff exposed to so many extraordinary people but also so many of our community who not just the celebs but people you know ordinary people who blow me away on a daily basis with their courage just to start something you know Mm. I love that so yeah. I think you play
1: such a large part in getting people to, to do that. You are really collective and everything that you have done as the entrepreneur for entrepreneurs <laughs> uh, has you. just made waves in the community um, and it's it's really, really inspiring. Thank you. So to the tougher times now, yes. um, as I mentioned, I soaked up Risk and Resilience, the new book <laughs> yesterday, which only came out last Monday and I just had to get into it and it is Absolutely game-changing, as always, <laughs> as you always are, one of the most honest Thank and you. raw and open and also um, insightful in a, putting a new perspective on something that other people conventionally see would be a backward step or, or a negative thing. Yeah. So I think you called it the clusterfuck situation.
0: <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I think that is my opening <laughs>
1: Yeah. Can we talk about closing collective? Now, it was one of the most recognised, most influential magazines that – the cover, I mean, there was an Instagram trend for taking pictures of the cover and making <laughs> it look the most beautiful, and it was everywhere. Like, yeah. And it looked so much like it was just smashing the world. Yeah. Um, recently, I think it was March this year, earlier this year.
0: Uh, yeah, it was April, yeah, April 2018. So just a few months ago um, that I decided to close the print magazine. And um, there are many, many reasons. For that. Um, and it's interesting because just in those few months since I closed, um, Sarah Wilson closed, I Quit Sugar, Donna Hay closed her magazine, um, Samantha Wills closed her jewellery brand, Jodie Fox just announced Shoes of Prey closing, like so many other um, women in similar situations. And so uh, where do we even start? <laughs> so... I'll I'll start. Yes. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) picture, uh, for anyone who owns a business, this will make you as nauseous as it made me, but even (laughs) if you don't own a business, you'll be able to understand the the gravity of the situation when Lisa's newly appointed CFO came in to inform her that they couldn't pay the wages next month and that the business would fold in three months without some drastic changes. Mm. So I think that's what sparked the whole unravelling and and the next few decisions that came out yeah what did that feel like did
0: you have any idea that that was the direction before that I did it would be like unbelievably naive for me to say I didn't but not to the magnitude um that that it existed at the time so what happened was um so for the first 11 years of business with three staff it's like manageable you know it's a couple of million dollar turnover a year you know still a good turnover um then the first three years of collective so let's talk about collective as a five-year journey the first three years um was still very manageable and we were always growing and moving forward and then suddenly at about and also people will relate to this when you're in startup mode and i call collective very much startup um you know there's three of you you've got this great big dream to change the world um everyone's just you know yelling across the office let's do this let's do that and and everyone knows exactly what's going on and you know the third book in my series, Money and Mindfulness, I talk about, you know, being intimate with your data and how important it is, even as, a, <laughs> even as a creative, you know, when it's not necessarily our best friend. And so I've always run a business based on, you know, the creativity, but also with data being an absolute imperative. But... Collective grew at such a rapid pace. So, you know, I literally went from three staff and a turnover of a couple of million dollars to 32 full-time staff, which was nearly $3 million in salaries alone. <laughs> I then had over 80 freelancers. Um, we had an office, which, well, I talk about exact figures in the book, but 250 grand a year or something in rent, you know, 150 grand fit out, whatever it was, all the all the numbers. And so it suddenly was Oh, and a print magazine on, in 37 countries and, you know, multiple revenue streams. There was a lot going on. So um, this is a lesson to people because be careful what you step into. Like I thought, oh my God, this thing is growing so fast. It's amazing. And as you kindly said, like it was, everyone was talking about collective. It was just like smashing it. And in many areas we were. So we sort of had three areas, print, online, and events. Um, but the events were doing very, very well. And in hindsight, the print was doing quite well. But it was actually the online. And I I kind of lost sight of that. And it, I, it just grew too fast. I was a yes person. I started listening to my six direct reports who all kept saying, we need more staff, we need more of this, we need more of this. And I was like, something isn't making sense. It was, yeah, it was not working. <laughs> it was highly inefficient because I hadn't stopped and put the right systems and processes in place to keep up with the growth. And I wasn't strong enough around, you know, KPIs. You can only have this when you're hitting these key performance indicators or when you're making budget or whatever. So it was a very not level playing field. Um, And it got very, very out of control very, very quickly. And my boyfriend said to me kind of when I was in the middle of it, he was like, but you chose this. And I'm very conscious about my language. And I said, yeah, no, I didn't. I chose to um, start something that I had this huge vision for and this massive dream and to try and have a huge impact. And I'm a brilliant um, strategist and you know, creative and a leader and I'm very good at certain things. I am terrible at operations and finance and <laughs> IT and HR and legal and kill me now. And so uh, running a business with three people with a couple of million dollar turnover is very different to something with 32 full-time staff and a very, very, very large turnover in 37 different markets. And So what I would say to people is just be careful. Bigger isn't necessarily better. And um, it's not an uncommon story. You know, I listen to the stories of Netflix, you know, 20-year overnight success, as I said before, and bumbling along many different iterations of the business. Airbnb, you know, year three, they nearly went under. There's so many big success stories now that went through many iterations. So one of the reasons I decided to close it was my purpose and my vision for collective has not changed one bit, but I needed to break everything. I needed to cut the guts out of the business, get rid of the entire cost base and almost start again. And I'm very glad that I went to that level and that magnitude because hell, I'm never going there again. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know how to build it back up in a really, really sustainable way. So yeah so it was huge and a horrible 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 place to be you know like very difficult when you're a leader and and a brand outwardly is growing so much and it's such a positive story and it's such an inspiration to so many and then at the middle in the middle of it like I was coming home like lying on the bathroom floor just sobbing going oh my god how do I do this many things associated with that as well like um luckily I've done a lot of personal development because a lot of people get into that situation and their ego takes over or you know my whole identity could have been tied up in something which is very sexy a print magazine which everyone wants to be a part of (laughs) but I had to go okay what how can I keep moving forward how can I be the best version of me how can I actually continue to serve the community and I sure as hell couldn't do it when I was in survival mode and hemorrhaging money every single day. So I was like, I'm strong enough. I know I can do this. i just got to be courageous enough to break the whole thing, even though that doesn't look pretty, especially when you write a book about it, which tells every gruesome (laughs) detail. But I was like, well, you know what? I stepped into this and I made a promise five years ago that I would be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs and that I would live my life out loud. And if I was truly going to be a leader in this space, then gotta tell people when it's really hard as well because that's the only way we help each other I think you know by me saying, I made a mistake, like a big lot, <laughs> a huge lot of mistakes, close big clusterfuck. <laughs> and that's what,
1: I think that's where the power of the book and everything you do, but particularly this book truly lies because it puts a spin on what I think you would immediately think it's a step backwards or, yeah. you know, words like, I mean, I don't think failure, but the backwards nature of closing something, it has such negative connotations, but yeah. you've been able to really Uh, show that it's it's a pivot everything is part of the funnel that gets you through to the other end and thank you
0: and I think that's the thing I mean that is people have said to me what does it take to be an entrepreneur and I've always said it's about mindset and it's about having an unwavering self-belief you know and gosh, I really, that's when I really needed to dig deep and harness that and have that tenacity and that resilience because, you know, you, you do hear a lot of stories and it could have very easily been my story where my entire identity, my ego, everything was wrapped up in that. I saw it as a you know, huge failure. I moved countries because I didn't want to face anyone. But instead <laughs> I was like, right, okay, buckle up. You know, how can I take these lessons, how can I own them again? We started this conversation talking about authenticity and that nothing can truly hurt us if we tell the truth. And that's why I chose to tell it very publicly. And I could have just said, "Oh well, that was closed," and not said a word about it. And I think that's when things start to hurt us because then people speculate or they create their own story. But when you own your story authentically and you tell it exactly how it is then very little can hurt us and in fact what I'm experiencing at the moment is that the brand seems to be getting stronger and people are actually celebrating us Now, don't get me wrong, I was so scared. The night before I dropped the magazine, the final issue, I was sitting here on this couch saying to my boyfriend, oh, my God, you know, we've got about 2.4 million people in our community, and I was like, oh, my God, people could absolutely crucify me tomorrow. Like, they might hate (laughs) me. They might think this is the worst thing ever. And I think because I owned it and I made a video about it and I shared the cover, like an open letter on the cover and did so many things, and people just... Like the outpouring of love and support was just extraordinary. So, yeah, be unafraid to own whatever is going on for you. Yeah, and
1: I think you do that so well and show the the power of just continuously cultivating resilience because that's I think that's the best skill that you can have in business is that resilience and ability to pivot and then make the best of of any particular scenario including a conventional failure to make something <laughs> to make something better
0: out of it well thank you i think that's a thing i mean this isn't mine but i say this a lot you know we we can't control what comes at us all the time. Like so many unexpected things come at us every single day. Particularly as you step further and further into a bigger and bigger life. But we can control how we react, and I think that really defines us as a person. It's like not how you are when the things are going well, but how you actually front up when things are really tough. You know. So hopefully, I'm like, okay, I got this. I'm, I'm still. I'm still. I feel like I'm still living my truth. So that. That's that's important to me.
1: And I think part of that as well is you mentioned before that the night before releasing the the last issue that you did have a bit of self-doubt and you sort of agonized over the decision. And it's my favorite quote is doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Because I think it's such an innate, natural human tendency, but also incredibly destructive of dreams and confidence. But it's good to know that even the most resilient among us
0: (laughs) still doubt yourself and I think that's the thing. When you're sitting in a space of potential fear or self doubt, that probably means that more often than not, you're on the cusp of something very brave and courageous, and, you know, something, a big turnaround, a big pivot is going to happen. So, yeah, the reason I sat in that space was I was about to drop something huge, and, you know, it was a big risk, and I did it, and it worked. (laughs) And do you have. I think in, in the lead up to anything
1: great or anything new or in any kind of transition, you often end up in, in meltdown mode. When the self-doubt gets to you, you know, you sometimes have days when you're hormonal, you're tired, and you mentioned that I can't cope Yeah. <laughs> so um, my creative brain, I think it's a creative thing. I get quite bad anxiety. Yeah. And it's just a, a side effect of being like so connected and the brain being so active. Yeah. Um, do you have any of that like do you have I can't cope days where it all just gets too much and particularly when there's so like something like this is so big it's all consuming
0: yeah I do and you know what I I had a bit of a one this morning (laughs) just (laughs) there was so much going on and you know I think we all multitask in life and there's you know friends and family and finance and business and like there's a lot of different people pulling at you and um and I think the power of no is really important. And I was, a, I was silly this morning. You know, I know my own limitations and boundaries. And I took a phone call right in the middle of, you know, doing something else. And I knew that this phone call would be like tricky and long. And, um, yeah, and I just shouldn't have taken it because then I found myself like in overwhelm thinking, ah, why are you all pulling at me? Like just let me go. <laughs> but I did that to myself, you know. I could have very easily not answer the phone. And something I'm practicing consciously at the moment is I find myself – Um, I'm such a yes person someone will be like um hey do you want to come to this event or do you want to come and like in the spare of the moment I'd be like "Yes, amazing and it's literally and a lot of people will be nodding their heads at this it's like about 30 seconds to two minutes later I'm like don't why did I say that like I just (laughs) want some time and space for me so and then you feel awful because then it's like you go into that whole um fear guilt remorse shame oh my god now i've got to tell them no actually sorry i didn't mean to say that Overcommitting again (laughs) so what i would say is just be a bit more mind i'm saying this to myself as much as the listeners just be a bit more (laughs) mindful and conscious about things we say yes to and allow ourselves that time and space just to be and you know just I think we can all glorify being busy, but it's not the same as being productive or having that time just to, as a creative, just to think and, seek and educate ourselves and explore and play and you know all that kind of thing we fill up the days and then we become overwhelmed or anxious yes I relate very much to that <laughs> yeah and so much of that touched on exactly what this is about like the first
1: line of um, the intro is busy and happy and not the same thing and yeah that between work and rest a life is so linear there's work and rest but there's no play yeah um, which is which is so difficult
0: yeah and actually a big overt example of that was September last year when I mean that's when really the you know proverbial hit the fan with the entire collective like I realized the magnitude and I talk about this in my book but right in the middle of that my beautiful dad had a heart attack and died and so you know this is when you talk about you know we can control how we react to things but we can't necessarily control what comes at us so already like I had you know, my CFO, chief financial officer saying to me every day, we need another hundred grand. And I'd like hustle my ass off all day and find different ways of making money and get on the phone and dial for dollars and be exhausted and wrung out and think, oh, high five me, get to the end of the day. Okay, I did it. I'd walk in the next day. Oh, we need a, it was like someone was just flushing money down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, So every day fronting up to that and trying to keep the business afloat and keep paying salaries. And I'm very proud that, you know, I paid absolutely everything to the nth degree. Um, And right in the middle of that, like dad suddenly dying, which was hideous. And so then right in the middle of like my worst time in my entire life, I'm then organizing a funeral and dealing with all of that emotionally, but also then having his lawyer like calling every day, I need this, I need this. And like... You know what I mean? Like whether it's this situation or someone else with kids and family or all sorts of other things, there will always be people who, people will relate to this. Someone just says to you, oh, but I just need. Oh, but I just need. It's like (laughs) enough already. Like something's got to give. Like you don't understand the person who's saying I just need. There's one of you, but there's 50 other people (laughs) saying it at the same time. And so I think that's where we have to get really strong on our boundaries and our not negotiables and our ability to say no, because whilst it's just one more question for that person, it's just your life that's kind of like getting out of sacrificed control. Sacrificed in, in the yeah. background. Yeah. And
1: that uh, touches on something that I wanted to ask about with going through tough times in business or yeah. in, in your personal life, that it's it's very hard to distinguish between like what your business's image is. And because our personal brands are so tied up with our business identities, how do you deal with that disconnect or or the difference between um, wanting to put on a strong business face and not necessarily reveal that things aren't going well, but also knowing that you're not going very well either. And like there's such a difference between what's behind the scenes. Do you pull away from social media in those times or do you? how do you sort of manage that? Because I sometimes find um, you always want to project that the business is healthy and happy and, and going well, but sometimes it's you're not and you just don't feel like you're in it. So Yeah,
0: well, kind of. But I mean, I think if you looked back through probably any of my social media posts for the last two years or 18 months through this period, you would see, because I put a lot of inspirational quotes, like you'll probably see... <laughs> Um, whatever I post is generally as much for me as the community. And I think that's why it resonates for people because I'm like, this is how I'm feeling. And then I'll often write something, you know, underneath the quote. And so I probably like alluded to it a lot through that period. And whilst a lot of the business was hemorrhaging, It actually was a pretty healthy business. There were parts of it that were really growing at an incredible rate. Like we launched masterclasses, um, physical masterclasses at our Surrey Hills office through that period and we were getting 70 people, which is the maximum capacity at our office at at $149 a ticket and we were selling those out so much so that through that period we were often putting on like four masterclasses a week. So that part of the business was continuing. to grow and the magazine itself was continuing to grow more and more like in um, newslink rankings and you know getting more and more numbers so the business in and of itself was actually doing quite well it's just that I had way too many staff, and it was way too inefficient so yeah so this story about you know what was being projected externally in terms of brand a lot of it actually was growing it's just that I was a really crap HR person and (laughs) like I put the I put too many people on um you know when I launched the business in 2013 I think everyone was on like 32 grand or something like whatever the lowest salary (laughs) you can pay people and suddenly like I had one guy on 250,000 dollars and a lot of people were on like 170 or you know like crazy money so it was just unwieldy and I should have said no to a lot more people. I think that's a problem. People probably saw from the outside a brand that was big and growing and so they came in demanding, you know, big salaries for something that was seemingly very successful and I was saying yes when in actual fact I should have been saying, no, you'll be on 60 grand and you'll be on a commission and, you know, <laughs> which is what I'm very much doing now. Um, yeah, I just I should have said no a lot more really. So... There's actually something
1: really funny you said in the book, um, in the introduction, where you laugh about... How people think you're rolling in it because of oh. what looks on the outside, but actually at home you're like, can I afford those tea bags,
0: or oh. are they too
1: expensive? It's
0: awful. That's my a business my boyfriend life. and I talk about it all the time. Even <laughs> and even though, ironically, I write everything in books and tell everyone oh, this is exactly <laughs> what I'm going through. I mean, I use a lot of very overt, very overt examples in the book, and he still, we're still. Befuddled. Like someone this morning asked us if they could borrow like 50 grand because they just needed <laughs> to do it something. you have it lying around. Yeah, and I, but to both of us, they're always, I don't know, and I'm like, read my book. <laughs> like everyone's always like, oh, can you invest? But there wasn't even an investment. That was just like can I borrow 50 grand from like to do a renovation on my house or something? And we are like. Oh, God. <laughs> so people do think we're absolutely Rolling in it, I think. Anyway,
1: (laughs) I think it's just yeah. You project, you know. We're all faking it till we make it, but the the faking it bit makes it look a lot more glamorous than it is. Well, I
0: give you a red hot tip. Now that I've broken it all, I will be rolling a bit. (laughs) But, um, But the thing is, I say that tongue in cheek because for anyone who knows me and anything I've written, like I couldn't actually care less about money for money's sake. I mean, I'm, I'd happily live on 100, 150 grand a year for the rest of my life. Like, that's all I actually need. I mean, I like a nice lifestyle, but um, I, I only like making money for freedom and choice and to keep the thing afloat. Like, I don't do anything for the money, yeah. but, um, but it is really horrible when you don't have it to stay afloat. <laughs> so,
1: Yeah. So that brings me to Lisa as a person. So we talk so much these days about what we do. And I feel like when we introduce ourselves, it's usually like, what do you do is kind of the first question. I know, which is terrible. I know, it's never who are you or what do you like doing? And it's, yeah, it's too often separated from what makes us happy. And I think it's hard when you're a business owner because your identity and your happiness is so... Uh, joined in what you're doing and what you're creating. And you, you do get a lot of joy from that. But there's yeah. there's no play. There's no room for play. So this is, I like to call it, um, the difference between slay TA, so working to get your happiness, and play So are there any things that you do in your life that aren't for a reason? Like I garden or I, yes. I do puzzles. <laughs> I've been like doing board games just because I needed to find an identity again that wasn't my work or my vision and it's relentless in itself anyway. So you need to give yourself something that's you outside of that.
0: And I love that. And I would yeah consciously urge anyone. I think so many people define or put people in a box by what they do. And certainly probably for that first 11 years of my business that I talked about, my identity was ridiculously in hindsight, so wrapped up in what I did um, which is crazy and I think the notion of yeah playing and who are you as a holistic person what do you do outside of work like that's something that um my boyfriend and I have been very much more conscious about and every weekend we kind of check in with you know what are we what are our goals this week in terms of our health and like all sorts of other things that are non work related um because as you know uh, entrepreneurs who love what we do for work we really have to consciously pull back from that okay so playtime <laughs> <laughs> and boyfriends. tell and us about that and you've been yeah. very open
1: about your relationships and like the interaction between work and, oh, and making time
0: for a love I w- life I was Leah we can get into that <laughs> um so yeah so I have a lot of not negotiables in my life, and I think this is really important because you know people see the busyness or the output or the productivity or you know all the products we produce or whatever it is. But the only reason I'm able to do that and stay sane is having not negotiables. So you know things like time out. I mean, we're doing this interview in my house where I consciously choose to work from a lot these days, and my dog Benny is here on the couch, and we will go for a walk at the beach later a nice nap. <laughs> and I'm surprised he's not snoring. <laughs> (laughs) Um, So um, I think it's about redefining the rules and also understanding that so much of my creativity comes not when I'm being busy but when I'm actually allowing myself that time to play um yeah so my house is filled with plants <laughs> my it's deck amazing. above this is like I have so many plants I'm obsessed with gardening I love nature I love being in the outdoors um you know I love exercising I'm obsessed with the gym again I've got a re- newfound love for the gym at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah and we do a lot of things that are you know outside of work we travel a lot so we just came back from um, New Zealand two weeks ago where we just had so much fun traveling around the whole of the South Island um in a camper van and skiing and yeah so we play a lot and it's it's really really important um we went to an art class Uh, last week where we ended up painting jellyfish like we try and do a lot of things that are just (laughs) a bit silly and whimsical and take us out of that take me out of that um, very masculine energy that I can sometimes find myself in at work and we just get a bit silly and ridiculous and you know ideas come from everywhere so it's just about being open and yeah, the power of play and joy is really important, I think. Yeah. And not taking ourselves too seriously. Oh,
1: and we get so bogged down in that all the time. Yeah. And that's why I chose the word yay for this because I like that it evokes that childlike sense of wonder that yeah. your professional life can make you forget so easily because it is. It's like, I'm a serious business person, blah, blah, blah. And then, you you know, you forget that now Nick has um, – Gotten into Lego again, oh, and it's like a moving amazing. meditation. Like we're both just finding things again, like that, that are really important. And you've I'm a couple of
0: years snoring now. Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> um, you've also uh, been to India, and mm. you took some time off and. In- in the start of this year for Byron. Mm-hmm. And I think your biggest creative breakthroughs have come after periods of just removing yourself from your environment and
0: having some play. So Absolutely. And so on that, you know, they're geographically quite a long way to go. And amazing. I mean, I went to the Ashram Meditation Centre in India twice in three months. Um, it is not the same as what's perceived on Netflix now, being a masogy, <laughs> it has changed since then. Um yeah but also i mean what do we do two nights ago we just drove out to haberfield and found like a random restaurant we'd never been to so sometimes we're consciously just putting ourselves into a different suburb or a different place that we've never eaten or like it's just trying to purposely be counterintuitive to our daily routine quite a lot i mean i'm into routines and rituals and not negotiables but i'm also like let's push ourselves and if we can't travel somewhere far geographically well let's you know travel to a different suburb or listen to a different podcast or meet someone or have a conversation with someone we wouldn't normally have a conversation with even if it's the uber driver and just learn something different just stay open you know because ideas ideas are everywhere and i think i said at the beginning of this you know i'm a seeker and i'm fascinated by human psychology and what makes people tick so I'm always having those conversations play is the most important word actually having been through 18 months of hell like just not taking things too seriously and just finding joy and being light and in flow do you ever get guilty about leaving work and not working all of the time. No. So should we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Because I want to (laughs) know. So since I broke collective, very few people know this. (laughs) So for 16 and a half years, I have always had a full-time office. Like every single day I've turned up to an office except when I was traveling on the rare occasion and I would still be on my emails all the time. And in 16 and a half years, I've never had less than three staff that entire time and so in april this year 2018 i choking on these words made all my staff redundant Every every single one every single one yes so that is a very expensive process um but also you know when i talk about it in risk and resilience the first round of redundancies it was heartbreaking and i cried and cried and cried and it was awful but they were all amazing but this Um, set of redundancies in April were completely different because um, I took the remaining staff on this complete journey. I was completely open and transparent. I showed them every financial. I showed them everything. I talked to them about my vision and then I gave them all the opportunity to leave completely and then all come back and work for me as freelancers. So I now have about 17 of my staff from the last five years working back for me, but every single one of them is a freelancer or consultant. They're all working on a project-by-project basis, and so now we don't have an office, and it's completely decentralized, and it is amazing (laughs) so far. And that's actually what my whole next book is going to be about, because in five years of Collective Hub, we did over 6,000 interviews in the print magazine and online. And the ones that people resonated with and wanted more of all the time were all about having a side hustle or how do I work from anywhere or how do I work when I'm on holidays? And so <laughs> my editor, Amy, has been working, running the entire magazine from Kayama on the south coast, two and a half hours south of Sydney, for over two years. So she's been freelance, but running the entire magazine for me. So she wasn't even one of the 32 staff. So then I was like, hang on a minute. And plus I mentioned, so of the 32 staff, only three of them were writers. So for a a content production company, only three of 32 were writers. Every single other one of my writers were freelance for the entire five years. So if I wanted someone to write a tech piece based in New York, then they would do that. If I wanted someone to write a fashion piece based in Berlin or whatever. So then I was like, right, I am going to test this theory completely. I'm not going to have an office and I'm going to decentralize everyone. And so far, what are we now? April, May, June, July, August, September, four months in. It is heaven because (laughs) um, because. What happens is if I was producing a cover before and there's 32 people in the office, only probably two of them, my art director and maybe one other person need to get involved in the cover conversation. But every single month there would be 32 people standing around giving their judgment and their input and like it was a big (laughs) talk fest. And because we were grossly inefficient, that would happen so often. And so, that just became exhausting and totally not productive but now because like my touring manager Ian lives in Perth my publicist Georgie lives in Wagga my art director Em is in Cronulla, my bookkeeper Kate is in the Blue Mountains like I have people everywhere so they are only involved in conversations or they only need to know about projects when I tell them about projects and so it is so efficient <laughs> plus if you and I decided to go to the beach the afternoon no one would know (laughs) i actually feel like you know people always
1: say what's next for Are you guys gonna get bigger and i'm like i kind of enjoy where we are i like we're we're very decentralized we have warehouses in melbourne and la and like we can live between them and not have to do that Permanent office thing. I'm like, that's what I ran away from in corporate. Yeah, I have like- you
0: not got a per- permanent office? We have either. the cafe. So yeah, of that's, course.
1: And you know, that's our rent outlay. And I sort of feel like because we can work from there, and we can work yeah, from our yeah, home yeah. offices, and we travel so much that a third location yeah, to pay yeah, rent yeah. on just doesn't make yeah. sense.
0: Exactly. So this is, you know, I've always throughout my whole journey, and we kind of alluded to this, and we've talked a lot about it actually, um that. Being an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, I want to keep testing different ways of working and living and different ways of sh- demonstrating by living it myself how do we live our best life. And so it was very different. You know, even when I started Collective, everyone kind of worked nine to five or eight to six, or even, you know, people were so passionate, it would be like Saturday night, they'd be on their emails, and I'd be like, get off your email, stop working <laughs> so <out>. hard. <laughs> and then the culture kind of changed, you know, when it grew bigger people went a bit more like nine to five because oh she's leaving at five you know all that stuff and people wanted side hustles or people wanted to work from elsewhere and so I've watched this entire movement happen where decentralized workforces and different ways of working and expectations um, are happening everywhere like we can't avoid it and even within corporate which is wonderful to see people are starting to embrace it so I was like right I'm going to really push this so what I actually want to do is build collective backup then write another book about how yeah. to have a really sustainable <laughs> brand unfuckable excuse me <laughs> I love
1: that word unfuckable <laughs> the unfuckable business model yeah there you go next
0: book title um but actually like really push the boundaries and go well with no full-time staff I reckon I can get my turnover up well above you know where we were before which is pretty big and have it like massively profitable and love what we do and provide jobs for people in rural and remote areas as well and you know like all this stuff like i think a lot of good stuff will come from it and also really push technology because obviously you know we have to have a lot of zoom like lots we use lots of different apps and things now to have this decentralized stuff and remain connected and have that sense of family and community still but so far Fingers crossed! It's so working. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's such an important reminder that the vision is one thing, but the delivery—it's all in the delivery—and like mm. you can't have a, a great vision that's sustainable if you don't deliver it in the right way. So it's so cool to see that you're just experimenting with the delivery. The I'm vision ex- is still there.
0: Yeah, I'm experimenting. I mean, I've always said um, the delivery mechanism is in the product or service that you're. Um, like so if collective stands to ignite human potential from the get-go I said it actually doesn't matter if it's a print magazine or I'm doing a speaking gig or writing a book or running a workshop or doing a podcast with you like that needs to change according to the market but now I'm really pushing the parameters as well on um, the delivery mechanism or the staff you know how you staff that and so that's what really excites me now and I think it's also about making peace with the norm because I, for that first 11 years, people used to say that a bit like what you said before, the question about what do you do? People used to define my success about like, how many staff do you have? And i oh, God, for God, for 11 years, I was so embarrassed. I'd be like three. And in my head, I'd be like, oh, how do I make it sound like more? And, <laughs> now, and now I'm like, none. <laughs> and I feel great. So yeah. again, I would say to people, just do it your way whatever feels right for you and don't let other people's judgments or societal expectations dictate how you live your life you know take what you can from what you and I are talking about or and multitude of other things and then make it your own and be okay with it don't let other people's judgments kind of rule or ruin your life yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> so just uh the last couple of questions
1: are just out of curiosity like yes. a couple of almost fast fire um so to operate as Lisa Messenger uh, at the crazy, I can imagine crazy levels of energy that you have to have to be you. Hmm. How many hours of sleep do you get a night? Um, eight
0: to ten. Oh, good! That <laughs> every, makes me feel better. Every night, my boyfriend gets up at five every morning, oh. and I generally sleep till seven thirty or eight. <laughs> right. that's
1: amazing. I love
0: sleep, <laughs> but I'm never tired during the day. Oh, that's so great. I can't again do life on your terms like I used to be so uh, like when he started getting up at five every morning I was like oh I'm such a loser why should not I do that, do that? <laughs> yeah. and then I'm like oh you know what it's actually great he does like three hours of work before I get up and <laughs> <Whee!
1: laughs> and uh do you have any bad habits
0: oh um, oh I'm sure I have a lot <laughs> god I still bite my fingernails oh, oh that's, that's, my that's ha- so funny <laughs> There you go. Never said that out loud. Oh, so, that's so funny. I <laughs> love like that. By, it's like <laughs> a five.
1: <laughs> have I'm sure you've met some of like some seriously incredible people, but have you
0: ever fangirled any of them? No. Oh, good. You keep your composure. <laughs> I do. I'm really, really strong on that because um, I mean that's probably been a trained thing. Well maybe I don't know, I was always a bit irked by it. But then I always I have this really strong thing that we should meet people. Like not just meet them in a physical sense, but like always believe that you are equal to whoever you're meeting. Because if you don't and you go I think energetically, I'm going a bit woo-woo here, but you always put yourself on a <laughs> lesser level straight away and the universe sees that and yeah. things don't happen. I know this sounds woo-woo, but you got to just trust me Oh, I'm all about the woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, whoever's listening just <laughs> yeah. needs to trust us.
1: And what are some interesting three, or as many as you can think of, things about you that don't come up in these kind of conversations that haven't, you know, been on podcasts or that aren't in your books. And because you're so open, like, I'm pretty sure that would be hard to find. Uh,
0: but are there any,
1: like, tattoos or allergies or?
0: No tattoos. Oh, allergic to a lot of things. Like, highly allergic. Like, ridiculous. I'm sneezing all the time. Um, pollens and things. This is rare. I said to Sarah, because she sent me all the questions before. I'm like, I actually didn't read anything because I never do it. Now I'm like, hmm, if I read that, I would have actually prepared. <laughs> I'd have a good answer. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes, just everyone, so you know, Lisa didn't do any preparation. I never She's do that. Open and raw and honest, and I love it.
0: And so, okay, there's something. Um, before any interview, whether it's on stage or a podcast, I purposefully never, ever, ever read a single question because I kind of like to be shocked and surprised myself. Because I feel I feel like <laughs> that way I'm going to give the most open version of me i don't want to ever prepare something i want to be in the moment and i want to give something like whatever comes up at the time i don't want to have a preconceived idea about what i'm going to say so yes so ask me something really okay. hard <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm like, i should have thought of more questions
0: <laughs> um so we both have uh, a
1: great love for motivational quotes what mm. is your favorite
0: if you Ooh. had to pick just one, my
1: favorite from the book was not all storms come to disrupt your life, some come to clear your path. Oh yeah. That's such a good one. I love. I scribbled it, it everywhere.
0: <laughs> I know I that's the thing I when I Oh, I'm. I love motivational quotes. Actually, here's a little secret. Next year, I'm going to bring out a book of motivational quotes, but with my take on them. Because everyone, it's so funny on Instagram. I started doing that, and I'll put up a motivational quote. It'll have like three thousand, four thousand, whatever likes. I'll put up a photo of you and I. I'll be like three mm, hundred. Yeah, like, <laughs> no one cares. So I'm the same. yeah, um, and I think because I always share them very much. Like if you literally read back through all my motivational quotes it will say a lot about what I'm going through at the time because I think we teach what we need to learn you know there's that old adage um so I'm always putting something up about how I'm feeling at the time and then I'll generally say something about it and then everyone's like oh my god me too (laughs) because we're all it doesn't matter what industry we're in or what we're doing in life, be it personal or business, like we all have the same challenges and I find when we're open and we share them, when we're vulnerable and we're authentic, then we become real and raw and relatable and attainable. So that's why I do that. Um, The one that I have shared through pretty much everything though first book daring and disruptive first issue of the magazine is the Steve Jobs one I Um, love that one yeah the long version which I probably could grab a book here and find it somewhere but um yeah where is it anyway it's not in front of me but um but I share it in most uh I think it's in daring and disruptive but I share it in most of them and um Yeah, you'll have to buy Daring and Disruptive or the first copy of the magazine to read it. But, yeah, it's it's about – it starts off, you know, those of us who think we're crazy enough to change the world are the ones that do. But there's a whole long version of that and, yeah, I love that. It's such a good one. Yeah. And
1: then just (laughs) finally, what is next for Collective?
0: The thing about that is I'm sort of surrendering to – surrendering and being detached from outcome because – Again, that's counterintuitive. Most people are like, but I've got to create, I've got to do this. And the thing is, I know 100% what I am here on this planet to do. And I know what collective stands for 100%. And so I'm kind of open for a while because through those five years, having met so many extraordinary people, you know, like when I met Jamie Oliver and him and I like, ah, we should do this. And yeah, we should. But a lot of the time, I didn't have time to, you know, you meet someone for an hour and then you're like, anyway, got to keep (laughs) hustling. And now I actually have time and space to re-explore some of those extraordinary relationships and so I'm just staying open to you know what is next what is possible what is the best way for me to deliver on igniting human potential and so yeah at the moment I'm just loving writing books doing speaking doing podcasts you know, and <laughs> kind of reimagining what that looks like so not too attached to the outcome and kind of excited about the possibilities i can't wait to see <laughs> what comes next <laughs> you know it ain't gonna be small <laughs> yeah, it never is when you're concerned
1: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today this was absolutely brilliant and i will share on the show notes which um, I have to figure out how to actually make those. But I will share <laughs> on the show notes uh, where you can buy Risk and Resilience, Lisa's latest book, which is available now. I highly recommend a read. It is incredibly raw and open and full of pearls of wisdom, as they all are. So Aww. thank you so much, Lisa. Thank and, you. Yeah, it was great to have you on the show. Great to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up our very first episode. Thank you so much for joining. It's so funny. I'm totally faking it until I make it, saying our very first episode is if there's a whole team behind me. It's pretty much just me figuring it all out, figuring out the editing and everything. So if you have any feedback or suggestions, it would be so welcome. Uh, And if you also have any suggestions of people you want or any requests of things you'd like to hear, please also let me know. I am going to get some show notes together just to include links on how to buy the book and uh, obviously other people who I can't wait to share. Lots of other people will be featured and they'll have other things to share um, via links. So I'll make sure that that's up and running. I made the very difficult decision not to start a new Instagram for this podcast because I already managed quite a few and trying to get some balance in my life. So, just keeping this as a Spoonful of Sarah production. So, you can follow along to get updates on new episodes at spoonful underscore of underscore Sarah. And I'll be posting the show notes on spoonfulofsarah.com. So, please do follow along. Thank you so much for joining for the first one. And I hope that you are out there seizing your yay.